Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we have a solo topic video, not part of one of our longer chains, not Microsoft times Activision, Epic versus Apple or Elon versus whatever in the world he's doing with Twitter on any given day. No, instead, we have a story that was brought to my attention by a number of you that asked for my comments. On your screen right now, if you're watching on YouTube, is a tweet from the name Mick Gordon, who you may or may not recognize as the composer of the Doom and Doom Eternal games for id Software. Now, his tweet is very interesting. He says, Marty Stratton, the id Software studio director, lied about Doom Eternal's official soundtrack, the OST, in a Reddit post that used disinformation to blame me entirely for its failure. Later, he offered me a six-figure sum to never speak about it, but the truth is more important. Now, Mick Gordon's truth actually takes about 59 minutes to read in its entirety, at least as the Medium post suggests for the time. So we're going to be skimming through it, but I'm going to have comments on basically every aspect of it. First, though, we're going to have to get a handle on what it is that we're even talking about. Now, this channel is supported by viewers and listeners like you. If you enjoy this type of content, or if you've not seen it before, wait a little bit on this part, please consider supporting the channel as Raketsu86 has done. And very special thanks for Raketsu86. Again, check that out if you are interested and on with the show. So this is an article from VG247 called Doom Eternal's Bungled Soundtrack Highlights the Mistreatment of Video Game Music. And I highly recommend checking this out. I don't even know enough to be dangerous on the topic of mixing soundtracks or waveforms or everything else. So I've just highlighted various bits and pieces here to give you a flavor for what audiophiles, people that like music, were thinking when this OST was released. Or as the article puts it, audiophiles have analyzed the tracks and discovered a series of errors in the way that the tracks on the soundtrack have been mixed. The author here also notes that it's important to note that despite the amount of fans kicking off about Gordon not mixing his own music, it's not unusual for composers to have their music mixed by someone else. That happens because Mick Gordon, in answer to someone complaining about the OST, says he wouldn't have done it the way that the OST was put together. And that leads to some friction and consternation between id Software and Mr. Gordon, which is summarized in that letter, which Mr. Gordon now says is effectively lies against him. But in order to get the flavor for what we're even going to be talking about, I think it's important to go through that first letter about two and a half years ago. So this is a letter from Marty Stratton on Reddit, and it's going to talk about this situation. Over the past couple of weeks, I've seen lots of discussion centered around the release of the Doom Eternal original game soundtrack. While many fans like the OST, there is speculation and criticism around the fact that the game's talented and popular composer, Mick Gordon, edited and mixed only 12 of the 59 tracks on the OST, the remainder being edited by our lead audio designer here at id. Some have suggested that we've been careless with or disrespectful of the game music. Others have speculated that Mick wasn't given the time or creative freedom to deliver something different or better. The fact is, none of that is true. So what is Mr. Stratton saying isn't true here? He's saying that they're not disrespectful or careless with their music and that Mick Gordon received plenty of time to make this particular OST. We'll see in particular with respect to the latter that Mr. Gordon is going to dispute that notion. What has become unacceptable to me are the direct and personal attacks on our lead audio designer, particularly considering his outstanding contributions to the game, as well as the damage this mischaracterization is doing to the many talented people who have contributed to the game and continue to support it. Now, I think even in a dispute like this one, Mr. Stratton and Mr. Gordon can agree, probably do agree, that personal attacks, ad hominem attacks, certainly threats, 
are inappropriate for anything like this. This is a commercial dispute. This is a contractual dispute. And we're going to be talking a lot about contracts as part of this video. When asked on social media about his future with Doom, Mick has replied, doubt will work together again. This was surprising to see as we have never discussed ending our collaboration with him until now. But his statement does highlight a complicated relationship. Our challenges have never been a matter of creative differences. Mick has had near limitless creative autonomy over music composition and mixing in our recent Doom games, and I think the results have been tremendous. His music is defining, and much like Bobby Prince's music was synonymous with the original Doom games from the 90s, Mick's unique style and sound have become synonymous with our latest projects. He's deserved every award won, and I hope his incredible score for Doom Eternal is met with similar accolades. He will deserve them all. Now, rhetorically, we talk a lot about this when we're talking about messaging. This is an important point that Mr. Stratton is putting forth. I don't dislike what Mr. Gordon has made. And indeed, it's a wise one from his perspective because mostly everybody likes Mick Gordon's contributions to the Doom atmosphere. He played his songs at the Game Awards. He's gotten recognition for what he has added to these games. So if you're Mr. Stratton and you know you're about to make a statement that is going to if not disparage him, at least not speak particularly kindly about the work that he has put forth or his logistical capability of meeting your needs with respect to that work, it is good to acknowledge that the work output when finally given to you, according to you, does meet those needs and that there's a reason that people like them. Talent aside, Mr. Stratton continues, we have struggled to connect on some of the more production-related realities of development while communication around those issues have eroded trust. For id... This has created an unsustainable pattern of project uncertainty and risk. Now, this paragraph is very corporatized, but I think we can read between the lines to say, okay, I'm not going to fight about his talent. The music, once they're they're put into the game, are very well thought of, but working with him as a creative, as talent, is logistically problematic, right? There are production-related realities that he doesn't meet. Those have eroded trust and has created an unsustainable pattern of project uncertainty. He's not meeting his deadlines is how most people are going to take this particular paragraph. At E3 last year, so that's 2019 that we're talking about in respect of this note, we announced that the OST would be included with the Doom Eternal Collector's Edition version of the game. At that point in time, we didn't have Mick under contract for the OST. And because of ongoing issues, receiving the music we needed for the game did not want to add the distraction at that time. So this is a big time error. Uh, And certainly as a corporate lawyer reading this statement, which I had not read, before researching this video, this is a mistake. You don't make promises for the delivery of something by someone without having them under contract first. And the practicalities there should be obvious to basically everyone. If you're sitting at id headquarters or Bethesda headquarters or ZeniMax headquarters, depending on how high up the food chain you want to go, what you don't want to do is make a promise that you're now accepting money on. That's what pre-orders are, that somebody's going to make something and you don't have the actual contractual commitment to do so. Why? Because if you're Mick Gordon and his agent, you're thinking, huh, we've got some leverage now, you'd be right. They have made a promise to their consumers. They're collecting money on the promise of delivering that good. And hey, if you go and say, well, my fee is twofold, threefold, fivefold, tenfold, you might have them a bit over a barrel with these promises that they have made. Now, Mick Gordon doesn't appear to have taken that leverage and instead has signed a contract that we'll talk about when we get to his statement. But the very fact of the matter is, if you are operating your business in an ordinary course, you should not be making promises for contracts that you don't have in place yet. It can work. You can have talent or a creative person that signs up to that contract later on, still delivers what you have promised to deliver, but it's not a great way of doing business. 
Next, we get into a timing consideration that is going to be an area of significant dispute here. After discussions with Mick in January of this year, we reached general agreement on the terms for Mick to deliver the OST by early March, in time to meet the consumer commitment of including the digital OST with the Doom Eternal CE at launch. Now, here is already at least a slight mischaracterization because when they announced the soundtrack at E3 in 2019, which is the summer of 2019, Doom Eternal has what I believe is a November 2019 release date attached to it. So even if we grant kind of the full assumption, the full benefit of the doubt to what Mr. Stratton is saying here, he says they don't talk to Mick until January. And in January, they work out a deal where he's supposed to deliver a soundtrack in March. Now, all of that is going to be disputed anyway, but it's worthwhile to note that none of that time frame is before the original release date for the game or before the delay that happens to move that release date for the game. And that's going to be important because of some metadata and some accusations that Mr. Gordon is going to make in his statement from yesterday. The terms of the OST agreement with Mick were similar to the agreement on Doom 2016 in that it required him to deliver 12 tracks, but added bonus payments for on-time delivery. The agreement also gives him complete creative control over what he delivers. Now, this sentence is going to be disputed as well. The creative control over what he delivers and the creative control of what's in the OST, those are different concepts. And so we'll talk about that when we get to Mr. Gordon's statement. On February 24th, Mick reached out to communicate that he and his team were fine with the terms of the agreement, but that there was a lot more work involved than anticipated, a lot of content to wade through, and that while he was making progress, it was taking longer than expected. He apologized and asked that ideally he be given an additional four weeks to get everything together. He offered that the extra time would allow him to provide upwards of 30 tracks and a runtime over two hours, including all music from the game arranged in soundtrack format as he felt it would best represent the score in the best possible way. Now, in order to understand this dispute, we have to keep track of the timeline that is being offered. So here, Mr. Stratton says they have a conversation in January with some form of agreement in kind of limbo that is supposed to get them a soundtrack in March. The next month, after January, in February, Mick Gordon and his team say it's going to take us a little while longer. Please allow for that and asks for four extra weeks. As this paragraph continues in Mr. Stratton's statement, they say Mick's request is accommodated, allowing for an even longer extension of almost six weeks with a new final delivery date of mid-April. That's the story as Mr. Stratton and presumably id Software put it, it is not going to match up with what Mr. Gordon tells us in his statement yesterday. So keep that in mind. In that communication, we noted our understanding of him needing the extra time to ensure the OST meets his quality bar and even moved the bonus payment for on-time delivery to align with the new date so he could still receive the full compensation intended, which he will. In early March, we announced via Twitter that the OST component in the Doom Eternal Collector's Edition was delayed and would not be available as originally intended, which isn't ideal for id, certainly. It's important to note at this point that not only were we disappointed to not deliver the OST with the launch of the CE, we needed to be mindful of consumer protection laws in many countries that allow customers to demand a full refund for a product if a product is not delivered on or about its announced availability date. Now, this presents a whole host of problems, but one of which should be don't make promises when you collect money for things that you haven't contracted to create. This is going to come up, but you've already admitted the pertinent piece of this in your own statement, which is that you didn't have him under contract when you said Mick Gordon's soundtrack will be a part of the collector's edition. To some extent, as a lawyer, I look at this and say, if I'm on Mick Gordon's side, this is not my problem. The fact that you are now not able to meet your consumer protection law standards is not my issue when you made these promises. Now, in my contract, 
There might be consideration for what my release date has to be when I have to turn over materials to you and what the damages will be against me for failing to deliver those materials. But overall, most contracts are going to be written with a provision that says, I'm not responsible for your special or your consequential damages. I'm going to hit this date. And if I don't hit this date, well, then I owe you certain amounts of money. I'm not responsible for every possible thing you did before I signed that contract or how you're operating your specific company. That appears to be in dispute as well. As we hit April, we grew increasingly concerned about Mick delivering the OST to us on time. I personally asked our lead audio designer at id, Chad, to begin work on id versions of the tracks, a backup plan should Mick not be able to deliver on time. To complete this, Chad would need to take all of the music as Mick had delivered for the game, edit the pieces together into tracks, and arrange those tracks into a comprehensive OST. It is important to understand that there is a difference between music mixed for inclusion in the game and music mixed for inclusion in the OST. Several people have noted this difference when looking at the waveforms in the article we just talked about, but misunderstood why there is a difference. When a track looks bricked or like a bar where the extreme highs and lows of the dynamic range are clipped, this is how we receive the music from Mick for inclusion in the game. Alternatively, when mixing and mastering for an OST, Mick starts with his source material, which we don't typically have access to, and remixes for the OST to ensure the highs and lows are not clipped, as seen in his 12 OST tracks. This is all important to note because Chad only had these pre-mixed and pre-compressed game fragments from Mick to work with in editing the id versions of the tracks. Now, for virtually all three of these paragraphs, there's a significant dispute from Mr. Gordon, not the least of which is exactly what time he had to get these things done and what access Chad or id software itself had to the source information, right? They say we don't typically have access to that source material, Mick Gordon is going to say, hey, they absolutely do. They just didn't want to spend the time putting that together. This results in what is so negatively received by the public and reflects poorly on Mr. Gordon. But this entire statement is really designed around placing blame at the feet of Mr. Gordon and his logistical issues in accordance with what Mr. Stratton has to say, right? They say they don't have a contract with him for the OST because they don't want a distraction from his already existing difficulties with delivering music for the project. This is all going to be rehashed when we get to Mr. Gordon's statement. Several days later, Mick suggested that he and Chad working on the backup combine what each had been working on to come up with a more comprehensive release. The next day, Chad informed Mick that he was rebuilding tracks based on the chunks slash fragments mixed and delivered for the game. Mick replied that he personally was contracted for 12 tracks and suggested again that we use some of Chad's arrangements to fill out the soundtrack beyond the 12 songs. On the day the music was due for Mick, I asked what we could expect from him. Mick indicated that he was still finishing a number of things, but that it would be no less than 12 tracks and about 60 minutes of music, and that it would come in late evening. The next morning, Mick informed us that he'd run into some issues with several tracks, and that it would now take additional time to finish, indicating he understood we were in a tight position for launching and asked how we'd like to proceed. We asked him to deliver the tracks he'd completed and then follow up with the remaining tracks as soon as possible. After listening to the nine tracks he'd delivered, I wrote him that I didn't think those tracks would meet the expectations of Doom or Mick fans. There was only one track with the type of heavy combat music people would expect, and most of the others were ambient in nature. I asked for a call to discuss. Instead, he replied that the additional tracks he was trying to deliver were in fact the combat tracks, and that they are the most difficult to get right. He again suggested that if more heavy tracks are needed, Chad's tracks could be used to flesh it out further. After considering his recommendations, I let Mick know that we would move forward with the combined effort to provide a more comprehensive collection of the music from the game. 
On April 19th, we released the OST to CE owners. As mentioned earlier, soon after release, some of our fans noted and posted online the waveform difference between the tracks Mick had mixed from his source files and the tracks that Chad had edited in from Mick's final game music with Mick's knowledge and at his suggestion. Again, putting blame on Mick. In reply to one fan, Mick said he didn't mix those and wouldn't have done that. That and a couple of other simple messages distancing from the realities and truths I've just outlined has generated unnecessary speculation and judgment and led some to vilify and attack an id employee who had simply stepped up to the request of delivering a more comprehensive OST. Now, this framework in this sentence we'll also see has some consternation from Mick Gordon and suggestive of the fact that Mick himself had been responsible for vilifying and otherwise attacking Chad or anyone else at id Software. Now, I don't think that's really fair or realistically fair for a quote that just says, hey, I, I wouldn't have done it that way. But Mr. Stratton isn't satisfied. Mick has shared with me that the attacks on Chad are distressing, but he's done nothing to change the conversation. That's going to come up again. After reaching out to Mick several times via email to understand what prompted his online posts, we were able to talk. He shared several issues that I'd also like to address. First, he said that he was surprised by the scope of what was released, the 59 tracks. Chad had sent Mick everything more than a week before the final deadline, and I described to him our plan to combine the id-edited tracks with his own tracks. The tracks Mick delivered covered only a portion of the music in the game, so the only way to deliver a comprehensive OST was to combine the tracks Mick delivered with the tracks id had edited from game music. If Mick is dissatisfied with the content of his delivery, we would certainly entertain distributing additional tracks. I also know that Mick feels that some of the work included in the id-edited tracks was originally intended more as demos of or mock-ups when originally sent. However, Chad only used music that was in-game or was part of a cinematic music construction kit. That sounds like an admission right here as well, that at least some of the stuff that's on the soundtrack doesn't appear in-game at all. Mick also communicated that he wasn't particularly happy with some of the edits in the id track. I understand this from an artist's perspective and realize this opinion is what prompted him to distance from the work in the first place. That said, from our perspective, we didn't want to be involved in the content of the OST and did absolutely nothing to prevent him from delivering on his commitments within the time frame he asked for, and we extended multiple times, perhaps. Finally, Mick was concerned that we'd given Chad co-composer credit, which we did not do and would never have done. In the metadata, Mick is listed as the sole composer and sole album artist. On tracks edited by id, Chad is listed as a contributing artist. This was the best option to clearly delineate for fans which tracks Mick delivered and which tracks id's lead audio designer had edited. It would have been misleading for us to attribute tracks solely to Mick that someone else had edited. Now, this is an interesting point. We will see Mr. Gordon object to this, although I would argue that at least on Stratton's behalf, just showing Mick Gordon as the author of a track that he otherwise feels is busted or not good enough for an OST is arguably worse. Uh, so you have to ask yourself, which is the proper way to attribute this if Mr. Gordon would not have released it in that fashion? If you've read all of this, thank you for your time and attention. This is the short one, folks. As for the immediate future, we are at the point of moving on and won't be working with Mick on the DLC we currently have in production. As I've mentioned, his music is incredible. He is a rare talent, and I hope he wins many awards for his contribution to Doom Eternal at the end of the year. I'm as disappointed as anyone that we're at this point, but as we have said many times before, we will adapt to changing circumstances and pursue the most unique and talented artists in the industry with whom to collaborate. So if you're keeping score at home, this entire statement is basically, well, 
You didn't deliver what should have been delivered for an OST. You only delivered 12 tracks. It took us a long time to get those from you. Sure, we didn't have a contract, but we gave you enough time to make the soundtrack. And it was your idea to even use the stuff that we had as our backup. And so basically, the entire state of the OST is your fault. With respect and appreciation, Marty Stratton, executive producer, Doom Eternal. Now, this is two and a half years ago. So one question that pops into your head, or at least it pops into mine, is why does this statement from Mick Gordon come out yesterday, right? Why is it exactly that this took two and a half years to actually put in front of our eyeballs? Now, if we want to give Mr. Gordon here the benefit of the doubt, it's that he wanted to be very fulsome about what his response would be, and he wanted to give id Software enough time to make things right. He had a problem with this statement going out. He had a problem with the way he was treated on the OST. He also, as we will see, had a problem with how he was treated on making the in-game music for the entirety of the process, and he wanted to see if things could be straightened out. That's the benefit of the doubt version. The not benefit of the doubt version is something's gone wrong behind the scenes now in the immediate near term. He doesn't like how that has went, and he's decided to litigate this issue in public because of reasons. Something has gone wrong with settlement negotiations. We saw reference to a six-figure settlement. We can't speak to the specifics right there. We can only take him at his word. And as you can see here on Medium, it recommends that this will take 58 minutes to read. So we're going to be skimming through some of the substance here. A lot of it kind of is overlapping in the way that it is premised. Looks a lot like a legal brief, if we're being honest, where you've got sections that copy other sections in order to make points either more emphatically or to organize them in different places for different people. So we're not going to have to cover every word, but there's going to be a lot to dig into, especially regarding contracts and the way they do and don't operate. So let's dig in. The statement is issued in response to id Software Studio Director Marty Stratton's Open letter published on Reddit on May 5th, 2020. That is the Reddit post we just read. In bullet point form, Marty lied about the circumstances surrounding the Doom Eternal soundtrack and used disinformation and innuendo to blame me entirely for its failure, according to Mick Gordon. Afterwards, he offered me a six-figure settlement to never speak about it. And as far as I'm concerned, the truth is more important. So this headline item here is essentially exactly what is in his tweet. He also wants it known that in case anybody wants to position this statement as such, it's not an unprovoked attack. I'm not just lashing out at id Software or Marty Stratton. It is a defense issued with extreme reluctance, according to him. Now, this is interesting because of the timing component. This had died. I hadn't even remembered any of the OST stuff when this statement goes up yesterday. So while it may be a defense, obviously Marty Stratton and id went out with the statement they went out with. It is one that is long lasting. It is in the cooker for a long time. And we can't otherwise ignore that fact. He also wants to distance himself from any kind of attacks that would happen here. The statement is not an excuse for a hate campaign. Acts of hate dished out online won't result in positive change. In fact, it only makes things worse. Now, he says this is lengthy and detailed to prevent vague statements from turning into rumors and speculation. It's a direct response to what Marty Stratton wrote. He's going to try to keep names out of it other than referencing management id or Bethesda. And he has a couple of very, very important notes here from the commercial lawyer in me. One, I work as a contractor. He's not an employee of id Software. He's not staff. He doesn't work from their office. He's isolated from the development team, living and working in a country on the other side of the planet. A lot of musical composers are independent contractors. They're not in-house. They're doing these things based on a contract and with kind of vague or general goals and delivery dates without direct input or control from the employer. Essentially, contractors make their stuff. They turn it in. The the employer says, hey, I'd like this change. This isn't right. Or this is perfect. Thank you so much for the deliverable. And we move on. 
0.5 he makes. Super important to a lawyer that drafts contracts for a living. Contracts are integral. Nothing happens without a signed agreement. Don't work for free, kiddos. Don't do things on a premise of trust. You need some of that paperwork, especially if it's going to be your livelihood. If this is going to keep your lights on, if this is going to feed your family, feed your kids, you need to make sure that at least some of this is in writing, not because that writing affects the other person's behavior immediately, but because it gives you leverage if you need to call the lawyers in. An in-game score is written specifically for an interactive music system and consists of hundreds of short audio files and video game music contracts are budgeted in minutes. Lead developers calculate the expected length of a score at the beginning of the project, negotiate a permanent rate with the composer, which is written into the game's musical contract, and my contract for Doom Eternal was to deliver 142 minutes of music. We'll see why that's important in just a minute. I rewrite the in-game score as much as necessary until the client is happy. Once they are, the client officially approves the final files, calculates the length, deducts the minutes from the game's overall minute budget, and then pays me accordingly. I'm not paid for rejected music. It is discarded and not to be used. And then he defines an OST. But the important things are work on a contract. I'm a contractor. They budget my time in minutes. If I deliver 142 minutes that are accepted, I get paid that full amount under my contract and they don't use stuff that is rejected because, well, that would be stealing from my work. Very, very important. Now, this first section is actually about making the score for Doom Eternal. He says it was a difficult project. When I signed on, id Software handed me a music schedule that required two levels scored per month. Tight but not impossible, but release was still two years away. One of the game's key features was music that closely matched gameplay, so aiming to produce finished music for levels still months away didn't make much sense. To have any hope of accomplishing that, I needed to rely on id Software to provide me with materials illustrating the music's intended purpose. If you're in a contractor situation and you're a vendor making something for another company that's going to go into a bigger work, one of the things that you're going to negotiate in that contract is that they have an obligation to make sure they're delivering what you need to get your work done and that things like delivery dates are told, they're paused, if you aren't getting the specific material that you need. Now, I can't speak to what Mr. Gordon's contract actually says here, but these are the kinds of issues that contract terminology is at least ostensibly designed to protect against. If one side or the other isn't doing what they need to get to the next step in order to get to an ultimate delivery date, then the contract needs to take into account that that is happening. And hopefully giving somebody that is claiming something like Mick Gordon is here, the safety that they need in order to continue without worrying about breaching their own contract. He goes on to talk about the fact that there just isn't anything based on the levels that he has been given early on in this particular project, so he can't make what he is supposed to make. Two months in, it's clear the schedule isn't going to work. It was a masterpiece in Excel, but a disaster in reality. The requirement to write, perform, record, produce, mix, master, and implement two levels of music with feedback rounds every 30 days when the levels themselves were bare bones now looks ridiculous. It was simply too early to attempt locking off music. As of April of 2018, he proposes that we redo this schedule. Coming off the back of five other Bethesda published titles, this felt like familiar territory. Most projects begin with an idealistic timetable conjured up with a crystal ball that fails to predict the unforeseeable difficulties associated with cutting edge game development. And so as I had done in similar situations before, I proposed a schedule change. I clearly explained why the current plan was impractical. It wasn't final enough. I had to guess. There's no time for iteration. I didn't have enough wiggle room for that process, which is already ambiguous enough. And so I proposed a solution that would change the overall structure. My plan mirrored a typical approach. First, define the overall game's musical identity by writing strong reusable themes before ramping up production of final musical assets when the game's exact needs became apparent. 
It was early in development and the perfect time to make the change. My proposal was easy to execute, fit the development schedule and the budget, and would facilitate an overall better result. I was confident management would see the benefits and adopt the plan. I was wrong. Now, here we have to take a pause. So we're not talking about the OST at all, right? And you'll note that that's all Marty Stratton was talking about. That's where the issue came up. Nobody's really got a problem with the doom eternal music that has existed in the project. So we have to note the tilt here. Mick Gordon is unhappy with the overall relationship he had with Bethesda and the Doom Eternal project. That is going to inform how he reacts, how he describes, and everything that has happened in this particular argument, this Doom dispute, as the thumbnail says. And we have to take that into account because it's added a certain level of passion and emotionality to these things that are commercial disputes. And so while I think What he describes here is justified, poor management. I'm concerned about this. More is being asked of me than I can deliver. They're not making changes. They're not listening to what my suggestions are. We have to keep that in mind as the background to before we even get to the OST part of things, because there's a lot of extra baggage that goes into this relationship before we even arrive at Marty Stratton making that note that he does in May of 2020. Marty strikes down my proposed schedule. He rejected my belief that the current schedule was flawed and suggested my act of trying to do something about it was a sign of incompetence. At bare minimum, this is what Mick Gordon heard. We don't have specifics here about what this conversation looked like, but this is what he's reacting to when he's engaging with Marty and Id when the OST stuff happens. Refusing to accept the reality of the situation, he threw the proposal back in my face and proceeded to tear me down for having the audacity to raise the issue in the first place. I was taken aback by his reaction. In response, I said he seemed to misinterpret my proposal's intent that the current schedule's rigidity would cause issues down the line and that finding an execution framework for achieving our ambitious goals was my only agenda. He didn't reply, but the blow-up made it abundantly clear that the schedule would not change. I was stuck with it. Now, again, talking about the importance of contracts, this is the kind of thing that you have to make sure is right from moment one when you're signing up to what might be a master services agreement, an independent contractor arrangement, a statement of work, whatever it looks like for your relationship and the contract that you've entered into. And to some extent, even though this is described as something that is as obvious to him as the sun in the sky, we can't actually say whether his requests were completely erroneous or whether he was trying to essentially retrade on what was in his contract. I'm at least slightly sympathetic to Mr. Stratton here as described because he's getting faced with talent and he thought he was going to get a music on a certain time frame and now that musician is telling him, no, we don't think that that time frame works, presumably after he's already entered into a contractual relationship and a deliverable time frame in the contract itself. This is a manager that might not be doing well with these particular crises, but I at least am remotely sympathetic towards, I just want the things done that you promised me in the contract. Id Software's management had convinced themselves that locking music early would be a time-saving strategy, but it was a nightmare in real life. The team struggled to clearly communicate the musical requirements within the time frame set by the schedule, which was understandable since some levels were still a year away. I tried my best, taking inspiration from blockout videos, concept art, and text, but ultimately I resorted to imagination to score levels from the future I couldn't yet see. The game taking shape months later inevitably proved my guesswork compositions didn't fit. Weeks of work got thrown in the trash and calls for urgent rewrites came amid milestones already packed tight. The project's demands began to pile up, throwing the schedule into disarray. What frustrated me beyond belief was that I had flagged these exact issues as potential problems earlier in the project, but management seemed to forget that and instead blamed the causes on me. 
Immediate team members were sympathetic to the circumstances, but looking to them for support rarely got me anywhere. They were usually reticent, unsure of themselves, and hesitant to raise issues with upper management. So now he's starting to talk about the overall morale, structure, and efficacy of id software on the whole. This is a bit of a conflagration at this point. As development progressed, it became obvious whoever thought up the music budget also had no idea about the game's true scope. Stages blew out in size far beyond what had been anticipated. Hour-long levels where players traverse fantastic worlds with epic vistas and tricky platforming sections had just 30 seconds allotted to exploration music. Since Doom's mantra is wall-to-wall music, this made this oversight seem laughable. I was able to convince id Software to dedicate more minutes to these areas, but only after wasting valuable time on unnecessary demonstrations to prove that 30 seconds wasn't nearly enough. He's frustrated at what this company is asking for and what they're making him do. To compensate for the shortfall, they didn't unlock any more budget, the minutes, Instead, they reallocated minutes from the game's combat music pool, meaning other areas had less music as a result. Other combat areas had less combat music, which seems like an interesting place to take from the minutes budget in a game called Doom. I worked straight for months, desperately trying to stay on top of things, and each week seemed to bring a new set of problems. I was cut out of music meetings, my emails went unanswered, and the mandated file transfer system auto-deleted all the music files every two weeks. Id Software withheld important information, and I was hardly ever able to check my music in-game. Weekly calls with the audio team, which I relied on for a source for critical creative information to do the job, were frequently hijacked by panic-stricken managers who seldom brought anything helpful to the table and instead just hiked up stress levels. The heaping list of problems and their accumulative effect on the schedule didn't seem to matter to those people whose only method of response was messages laced with criticism, more crunch, less sleep. So all of this has to be taken into account. I am not discounting any of Mr. Gordon's experiences with id Software. It sounds like a real bear, but when we start talking about details with respect to what Mr. Stratton said versus what Mr. Gordon said, we have to take into account the fact that he is clearly very unhappy with how id Software was managing this project. Maybe justifiably, maybe not. We don't really get the receipts for all of that. I'm not a composer. I'm not a project manager of putting one of these video games together. So all I can evaluate here is that Mr. Gordon is very, very upset about what id Software was asking of him and what ultimately resulted from the project. And we'll see why quantifiably in just a minute. Arguments over pay began when id Software threw out two entire suites written for Super Gornest and Mars Core shortly after the QuakeCon 2018 premiere. The rejection was bad enough. It meant scoring four levels simultaneously the following month, but id Software also denied payment on the notion they changed their mind and no longer liked the music. I argued music appearing at a promotional event constituted usage. Therefore, they owed me compensation. In this case, they caved. They used it. They owe you money for it. There you go. But as development continued, they grew reluctant to approve anything. I delivered. As predicted, the audio team wasn't willing to sign off on anything they couldn't thoroughly test, and they withheld approvals and therefore payments for months. Beginning in January 2019, I went 11 months without pay. So he's not paid for the bulk of 2019. Delaying approvals also kept the official measure of completion in a constant state of ambiguity. I kept writing and writing, delivering suite after suite, working as hard as possible, yet management constantly painted my progress as a total failure and therefore an opportunity to chew me out with scorn and ridicule. Not wanting to discuss the circumstances, like how lack of materials was still an issue, these individuals would seldom offer assistance or put forward any solutions. Instead, they just sullied the relationship with unnecessary layers of friction. He's unhappy with their failure to approve. He's got crunch. Things get worse, and then they announce the soundtrack in 2019 with this particular page that says a playable cassette tape plus download codes for lossless digital copies 
of Mick Gordon's Doom 2016 and Doom Eternal original soundtracks. So maybe this would be okay if you don't reference Mick Gordon here, but they did. It's Mick Gordon's Doom Eternal original soundtrack. And as Mr. Stratton put forth in his statement already, it's not something that they had contracted for at this point in time. The problem? Pre-orders went on sale immediately, a severe issue because customers were putting money down for a collector's edition item that had no way of materializing at this point in time. The standalone OST wasn't in production, and I hadn't been offered a contract to produce it. In fact, we hadn't talked about the scope, the time frame, or whether it was even feasible. E3 events are planned months in advance, well-rehearsed and carefully managed, but nobody thought to discuss the OST with me in any way whatsoever. I learned about it in the media. I sent an urgent message to id Software saying they'd put me in a difficult position, and we needed an agreement immediately to ensure customers would get their product. But there was no strategy. Marty's response threw me. For reasons I still don't understand, he flatly denied me the contract and refused to do anything about the OST, saying he didn't want to cause a distraction, which is exactly what we saw in his message itself. Didn't want to cause a distraction. Didn't they just announce it at E3, the largest gaming show of the year? Couldn't they see the issue of taking pre-orders on a product without any agreement or strategy to actually deliver it? I pushed the issue again, but Marty refused to be drawn into an argument and shut the conversation down. He also didn't leave me with any alternative plan. Clearly, there wasn't one. Pre-orders sold out in days. The reality... Marty has since publicly repeated this didn't want a distraction notion, but the truth has caused a giant distraction. The collector's edition, a premium product sold for hundreds of dollars, was advertised with the expectation that buyers would receive a copy of Mick Gordon's original Doom Eternal soundtrack. Now, there should be an ellipsis here, because as we saw, it wasn't that sentence. But without a contract to actually produce the OST, there would be no OST to include. I was now under enormous pressure. Attaching my name to it meant I would be held publicly accountable if it failed. This is correct. Mick Gordon is exactly right here. You attach his name to this, and now he becomes a part of this story, whether he wanted to or not, for something that he hasn't agreed to produce for you. Nobody involved in the announcement seemed to consider consumer protection laws, promising a product that wasn't in production, put id software slash Bethesda at risk of violating those laws, an oversight that would have severe consequences in the months ahead. Marty reckons he didn't want a distraction, but what exactly wasn't a distraction about this situation? Finishing the game. In the following months, I continued to stress severe concerns regarding the apparent lack of any OST strategy, but time and time again, I was either dismissed or outright ignored. Development wore on. Tensions between id and me had been undeniably building from the beginning and only worsened as the cycle of demanding music, avoiding approvals, and withholding pay continued. Payment inquiries were routinely met with either empty promises, deflections, or long-winded excuses. Whenever I put forward the belief that perhaps the game had enough coverage and the minute allocation had surely been exhausted, They'd reject older music to make room for new demands. Occasionally, I bore the brunt of some managers adopting Bethesda's legal history as clout to make lawsuit threats during arguments over demands. Now, there's no doubt that folks that are otherwise going to be trying to get their music in against somebody like Mick Gordon, who is, I think, properly pushing back against what he feels is a fulfilled contract at this point in time, are going to threaten lawsuits and legal exposure. That's how this works. But it can't feel good when it happens. I contemplated quitting, except keeping up with the demands whilst not being paid meant I had financed the score expenses out of my own pocket. Now, this is a bad leverage position, obviously. I found myself in a commitment bias, worried I'd lose more by walking away than I'd gain by staying, so I kept working. By the time we hit October, I still hadn't received all the materials needed to finish the score. They hadn't paid me since January, and they still refused to talk about the OST. Then the game gets delayed. Suddenly, just six weeks from the release date, Doom Eternal gets delayed into the following year. The new release date, March 20th, was five months away. Delaying the game was the right call. At the time, it was not polished nor optimized, and Bethesda didn't want a repeat of Fallout 76. Shortly afterwards, id Software rejected more of my previous work, arguing they needed to claw back minutes to cover new requests for late changes 
and additions to the game. Now, this is an interesting process in and of itself. Ideally, in a contract, you'd have an acceptance criteria. It would be after a certain point in time. And then when it's accepted, it's accepted. If they have to go and reject things after the fact in order to earn themselves more time under their current allotment, you've got a problem of incentives at the id software or any game development level. And that's a problem that we'll see writ large when they get to actually describing what they used in the game. The mood turned sour. The ever-increasing demands for work coupled with ongoing crunch and lack of pay had taken a significant toll on my family and me. I pushed back on the demand, telling them I couldn't continue to work without pay. I hadn't been paid anything in 10 months. No more rewrites, no more excuses, no more discussions. I needed to be paid now. But no, according to them, I was the one being difficult and they urged in no uncertain terms to carefully consider the destination my protest would lead to. We'd have to take legal action against you. And that would be just sad for you, wouldn't it? My financial situation was dire. This project had been my only source of income, and I couldn't afford to enter a dispute against the ZeniMax legal machine over money. Facing the possibility of not being paid for the past 10 months at all, I relented and carried out their final demands. The money finally turned up at the end of November, and my family and I were thankful that it did. It was the first payment I'd received in 11 months. Id Software stopped talking to me, but the payment confirmed that my role in the project had ended. I finished the project feeling unhappy, empty, and in a state of anxiety. I crunched for two years straight thanks to a rigid, brutal music schedule that attempted to finalize the score before the game was ready for it. Forcibly writing music without a clear purpose caused problems when id Software inevitably rejected it months later, throwing it out with the unrealistic expectation that urgent demands for rewrites somehow wouldn't impact the already crunched schedule. I understand this approach was supposedly intended to elicit an efficient performance, but in reality, it was spectacularly inefficient. By the end of the project, I delivered more than double the minutes stated in the contract. He's put this in bold because it's important. Pay disputes, project uncertainty, and an overly chaotic atmosphere compounded the stress. And the whole situation was made worse by disciplinarians who treated unavoidable problems as incompetent failures worthy of reprimand. He didn't like working with them. Still, I stuck with id Software every step of the way, determined to get the job done. We ultimately achieved everything we set out to accomplish in a reasonable time frame. And Doom Eternal went on to release to critical acclaim and commercial success. Now, despite this, according to Mr. Gordon, there's still no OST deal at the time because there's no distraction after he delivers the music. He goes and asks Marty for an OST contract and he doesn't receive a reply. But here's where things get really, really dicey. He puts up this screen here in his message. Id Software went on to use nearly all of the music over double what they paid for. Or as it shows here, there's four hours and 46 minutes of music used. And what he was contracted for was two hours and 22 minutes, or there's more unpaid minutes than actually paid minutes. And again, I can't see his contract, but this is the kind of thing that really can result in lawsuits and fraud and breach and all sorts of complaints, which is as long as your contract had a concept of what happens when you deliver extra minutes and they're used, then you should be getting paid for them. This is what your livelihood is. You're paid for minutes. You deliver four hours and 46 minutes of used minutes in the final product. That's something that you should get paid for. It wasn't until after Doom Eternal was released that I became aware id Software had used nearly all the music I produced throughout their development, almost five hours worth, while only paying for half of it. Isolated from the team working on the other side of the planet, I had no control over how they used the music, Amusement placement was the lead audio designer's responsibility, and after I handed the finals over, they decided how to use them. Using double what they paid for wasn't an accident, it was a conscious decision. Rejected tracks, mock-ups, demos, ideas, sketches, a massive amount of additional music, well beyond the budget allocated in the contract, produced at their request and shared in good faith. But id Software included it all directly in-game, marketing and updates without paying for it. Even worse, id Software still refuses to pay for it, 
despite the fact their contract guarantees payment for any additional minute requested beyond the original budget, which it would make sense to have included in a contract like that. Clearly, the cycle of demanding and rejecting music, avoiding approvals, and withholding pay was a strategy to elicit enormous amounts of unpaid work to compensate for their budgeting shortfalls, but I wouldn't find that out until much later. So again, this is an accusation here. This is an allegation by Mr. Gordon, but at the point in time where you can show that these minutes were used, and I'm not exactly positive how this works as a final minutes analysis, and they didn't pay for them, well, then you've got a contract breach claim. But, and this is important because we're going to talk about contracts even more as we go on with this particular statement. Contracts are just words on a page. I know if you've been in virtual legality with me for a while, you have heard me say that. But what I mean by it is you can sign the best darn contract that ever existed. If you're not willing to go and enforce it, well, then it doesn't mean anything. We just talked about Elon Musk buying Twitter extensively in this space. Elon Musk tries to walk away from that deal in the summer. And if Twitter doesn't bother to sue him after that, well, that's how that story ends. Elon Musk doesn't buy Twitter. Twitter continues on and however Twitter was going to continue on. And everybody walks away despite what may have been a successful contractual argument from Twitter. Certainly they were having some success in the early stages, the pre-trial stages of the litigation that they had brought against Mr. Musk. They elected to try to enforce it. If you don't, if you aren't willing to go through that process, contracts can't save you in and of themselves. They are just words on a page. And one of the things that is happening in this story from my view of things is that even with a contract, Mr. Gordon wasn't willing to go full on, full out, against what he has described alternatively as the Bethesda and ZeniMax legal machine. So at that point in time, all the leverage lives with the company. And no, that's not particularly fair, but it is the truth. The beginning of 2020 marked six months of pre-order sales without an OST deal. My sustained demands for a contract had become an arduous exercise in expressing myself to deaf ears. Id Software had gone silent and I hadn't heard from them since November. So remember the time frame that Mr. Stratton had put forth is we're going to talk about this in January. They agree to a deal to deliver in March and then they need to extend into April. The release date was fast approaching, alarmingly so, and I was infuriated by the fact that I had been made publicly accountable for this item while being blocked from actually doing the work. You might say, Rick, he's not actually blocked from doing it. He could just start working on it, right? But... But, and this is important for contractors and anybody else working to know, is you don't want to do that for free. You don't want to make these things without a contract in place at the time, which is something he's going to talk about a little more as we continue with this message. So they still don't have anything. 8 January comes rolling around of 2020. Here's Mick Gordon saying, hey, I was hoping we could talk about this. He contacts Bethesda directly. And Bethesda responds. They're grateful to make contact, told me they would love to talk about the OST. I was excited to see the the wheels finally start to turn. And I also noticed that neither Marty Stratton or anyone from id had been included on the email thread. But we had an unresolved problem with another soundtrack. And this is big. And this is a great cautionary tale. Back in 2015, I scored another Bethesda published game from a different studio. Shortly before release, the team asked me to produce a standalone soundtrack album and wanted it ready for day one. The whole thing felt very last minute, but I agreed to do it. I started working immediately, but they held up the contract saying their sluggish legal department was so behind schedule that the agreement wouldn't be ready until after I delivered. This doesn't have to be an excuse. Legal department's notoriously slow. That was far from ideal, but their assurances led me to trust the contract would come through after delivery. That was my mistake. I crunched to finish it on time, but when handing over the finished album, the team abruptly told me they no longer planned to release it. There was no use for it. And as such, they refused to pay for it. The contract never showed up. 
It was hard not to get mad, but, but upon reflection, I had to accept it was my fault for working without a signed deal in the first place. I learned a valuable lesson, and this is a valuable lesson for everybody watching this video. We're almost 50 minutes in. If you take nothing else away, don't work without a contract. Don't work without something in writing that you could point to if a judge has to understand what the relationship was between two parties. Be able to at least point at something and say they promised me $10,000 for this. I do not have $10,000. I provided a deliverable. We're going to need some help, judge. If you don't have that in your back pocket, it's going to become a he said, he said, she said, whoever's involved on these various things. And that's going to be very difficult to prove at the end of the day. In October of 2019, Bethesda suddenly began selling that very same album. Remember, they'd refused to pay him because they weren't going to use it. Without telling me beforehand, I learned about it through social media and they hadn't paid for it. I sent a demand. Bethesda agreed to pay for the album but insisted the payment be consolidated into the Doom Eternal OST contract. At this point, I don't know where Mr. Gordon's lawyer is, but you need someone on your behalf to say, no, those are two separate things. We're not going to tie these things together. I'm not going to promise to do something else for you while I wait to get paid for the first thing. You have to step on your leverage a little bit. And you have all the leverage in the world if you're Mr. Gordon, right? I know that your name is in play and that's bothering you, but you can go out online and explain the situation as you are doing here in November of 2022. It's not ideal, but you don't have to commit to doing things when they are tying things together that shouldn't be tied together. This is the kind of thing where if somebody was sitting across the desk from me in my office, I would say, no, 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 no. Yes, of course they would like that. They still want something from you. Say, well, we can talk about giving that something to you when I am up to speed on the payments that you owe me. This is something that happens all the time with lawyering, right? Some credits don't pay their bills. Some clients just say, oh, we're not going to worry about that lawyer. He's not going to sue me anyway. And then when they come back to you in a year and need something, you say, that's fine. Uh, but your invoice is showing and I'm not going to do a darn thing until you pay off your bills. And at that point, hopefully that happens. Maybe you ask for a retainer to go with it, but you have to be thinking about these things and not giving the other side incentives to do this. I think, at least as described in this message, that Mr. Gordon is a somewhat trusting individual that wants to do things to get his products out there, get them done and help management get finished. But it is easy to get taken advantage of with that kind of conceit. And I feel bad for everything that I'm seeing here, but it's an important cautionary tale and I'm glad he included it. Deciding on the content of Doom Eternal's OST was a crucial detail that needed to be written into the contract. I initially wanted the album to be similar in scope to the Doom 2016 OST. I proposed a comprehensive album of 30 tracks and a runtime of over two hours, which one would assume at this point is matching up with what Mr. Stratton describes as happening on February 24th. We're not getting the same kind of time frame here, but you can see that already the January discussions are maybe happening with Bethesda, he says we reached a general agreement for delivery by early March. We haven't seen that from Mr. Gordon's statements yet. So let's see what he has to say. Marty would later claim this was the agreed upon deal, 30 tracks in a runtime of over 20 hours, but that is entirely false. In fact, the suggestion was shot down within a matter of hours because it was evident to me and everyone else actually involved in the discussions that there simply wasn't enough time or budget to make it work. Instead, with the imminent release date rapidly approaching, the reality of the situation dictated the scope. Bethesda asked me to produce 12 songs, and I felt that was doable in the short time frame we had. On March 7th, two weeks before the game's release, Bethesda sent me draft terms for my review. So according to Mr. Gordon, he doesn't get a draft agreement. He doesn't get even the bullet points of what this should look like until March 7th. This is your first kind of really major disconnect about them having any agreement in place in January to deliver by March, 
when on March 7th, Mr. Gordon is saying is when he gets the first draft of what this would look like. I'd produce 12 songs for inclusion in the OST. All 12 songs would be selected by id. Id had final approval. I was required to hand over all source files and the deadline was April 16th. A lot of differences already. Now let's give Mr. Stratton benefit of the doubt because that's what we like to do here. Even though Mr. Gordon is putting on a pretty good case for how this actually went down. It is possible that there are some kind of amorphous discussions taking place that don't arrive at the level of agreements or signed anything, right? We don't know what we don't know if we're going to give both sides at least equal credence. If we assume Mr. Stratton could have a similar medium post that has different facts that he would choose to use, we can at least acknowledge the possibility that Mr. Gordon is not including conversations that took place in this period of time and that Mr. Stratton is maybe hyperbolizing or otherwise just felt were things that were close to an agreement and understanding, even if not a contractual one. Hey, we talked, we talked in January, you're gonna deliver things by March. And then by the time this is all proceeding and you're up to this point in time, this is the extension he's talking about. Not a contract being extended as we might think of it and as how he implies it in how he describes, but instead that there were kind of concepts that it would be March, that didn't come to fruition. And so by the time we're actually signing a document, it's mid-April. Now. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt because I like to play devil's advocate and look at these sides in equal course. This, what Mr. Gordon is putting forth, makes a lot more sense to me. And I don't think there's anything that realistically approached that level of agreement, if at all, with Mr. Stratton as he described it in that note. If we're to take these email dates and everything on their face, and there really isn't a lot of reason not to. Bethesda told me that the April 16th deadline was ideal, but if I needed more time, they would be happy to amend the contract later. Now, again, this is that trusting concept. When the other side says, well, if you need more time, we'll fix it in post. That's the kind of situation we have to say, well, let's let's contract that. Instead of me depending on your largesse when I need that time, let's set up a position where I can give a reasonable excuse, a reasonable argument why I need an extra week or two or whatever that time frame is. I can go ask for it and then I'm not dependent on you. That doesn't appear to be what happened here. And indeed, Marty Stratton is going to deny that this exists at all, at least according to Mr. Gordon. The deadline was therefore considered flexible, but as an incentive, they offered a bonus if I finished by April 16th. Now, usually if you want a truly flexible deadline, that's something like a drop dead date. You have to deliver this by at least May, uh, but if you deliver it by April 16th, you get more money. And that's designed to be like, that's the deadline we really wanted, but we understand it's a creative process. The OST was delayed before I had a contract at all. On March 11th, Bethesda publicly announced that the album wouldn't be out on March 20th as promised. No new release date was given because there wasn't one I still hadn't received the contract. All this is, is a draft and negotiations of these particular points. Zenimax sent me the agreement on March 18th, just 48 hours before the game's release. Marty would later claim the agreement was finalized in January. That's what we were just talking about, implying I was under contract for a much longer period. That is a lie. As proof, this is a screenshot of the actual contract email showing the exact date. Here's the email. It's a DocuSign request for signature, 18 March, 2020. That seems all pretty legitimate to me. Of course, Mr. Gordon could be faking all of this, but there's really no reason to believe that he would. Despite the stress arising from the last minute OST deal, I felt the contract terms were doable. 12 songs by April 16th, 29 days away. Although I was disappointed by the overall situation and limited scope, I couldn't see any obvious warning signs that things would derail so terribly. I agreed to the terms and all parties signed the contract within hours. I readied myself for four weeks of solid work. Two days later, Doom Eternal was released. Then he plans the OST. And remember, from those deal point draft items, id Software was supposed to be a part of the process of selecting what music was going to make the OST. 
Even though the contract was now underway, I hadn't actually received any direction from id Software, and they continued to make no effort to talk to me about their expectations. But rather than waste time waiting, I took the initiative to begin work on what I thought would make the best album. This, to me, is unclear, right? We don't get a copy of the agreement, which maybe would be useful, but probably has an NDA associated with its terms, so he's already kind of walking the line on this stuff. But the last we heard, this was id Software's to decide upon. But he keeps getting himself in these situations where at least it's described in this message. If id Software just doesn't talk, he's out of, out of luck. He's in trouble. And so if you're looking at this contract on that side of things, you would want something that has a pretty harsh penalty for id Software doesn't talk to me. For every day id Software doesn't respond to an email, the deadline goes up. Whatever it's going to be, whatever novel situation you can do, at that point in time where you're negotiating the OST contract, you should be aware of how you feel about the last two years. So at some level, I'm looking at this saying, Maybe this particular composer is just being too generous with what he's already determined is a somewhat dysfunctional management team over at id Software. It doesn't mean that everybody should be a lawyer. Everybody should be looking at things as corporate and as cynically as possible. But I do feel like maybe Mr. Gordon's lawyer was letting him down on some of this stuff. And I feel bad about that. Marty then gets involved, brings threats, contradiction, and panic. Marty's email stated, contrary to what Bethesda told me, that April 16th date was now an absolute necessity. It wasn't flexible at all. He said consumer protection laws in some territories meant anyone who purchased the collector's edition was entitled to a full refund if they didn't receive the OST by April 20th. Maybe it depends on what the various laws say on this kind of stuff. It's a component piece of a larger article. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that. But it dawns on me, and this is how Mr. Gordon felt, so there's nothing wrong here that I was being threatened. Refunds meant financial losses. Marty was saying, in his view, I was legally liable for any loss id Software suffered due to customers claiming refunds over a late OST. If it wasn't ready in 13 days, they would come after me. And maybe so. Maybe that is exactly what he was claiming here. But it might not be the truth. Depending on what the contract says, you can often negotiate for what we call a limitation on liability provision that says, look, I owe you this music. I owe you it on the deliverable. Here's what damages you get if I don't deliver it. The direct damages, the stuff you don't have music in your hands. It's worth this amount of money. And so now I'm in trouble for that. If you get into trouble for the larger overall OST, things like that, you could have a provision in your contract that says, like, I'm not responsible for you violating consumer protection laws. That is not my fault. And you're signing me up to a contract with 29 days to produce this content. And so... I don't know whether or not Mr. Stratton was threatening him with this. Certainly it would be an effective threatening strategy, but either way, I am curious about what's actually in that contract and whether or not he would have had adequate contractual protection for this kind of thing. Maybe it is the case that he didn't have that protection. Mr. Gordon then goes on to say, I did the numbers in my head and the thought was terrifying of being liable for the losses on the collector's edition. I couldn't understand why Marty hadn't told me sooner. If I had been made aware of the consumer protection issue before signing the contract, I would have refused to do the OST. I think, I think, Mr. Gordon, you, you answered your question in the very next sentence. I couldn't understand why Marty hadn't told me sooner. Well, if he had told you sooner, you would have refused to do the OST that they had already promised to people. So that was its own problem. The fact that this critical piece of information had been withheld from me until after I signed the contract made the whole thing feel like a setup to shift liability caused by selling the OST without a contract in the first place. Now, interestingly enough, while this is a somewhat silly phrase in terms of, I don't know why he didn't tell me sooner, it does create a potential fraud claim, right? I would not have entered into this agreement if you didn't withhold from me this specific piece of information that you are now telling me. Uh, and if that were the case, you could potentially claim, hey, I, I was not going to enter into this contract. I was sold a bill of goods. They deliberately omitted material information to get me to sign. And now maybe I have a claim 
on that basis. Id Software had been working on an alternative OST without me for at least six months. Now, this at least six months is important. Remember, in terms of what Marty Stratton puts out there, he says, because we were worried he wasn't going to hit April, I personally asked our lead audio designer to begin work on id versions of the tracks. Now, again, this might be technically right. Because I was worried he wouldn't hit April a long time ago, I started this process a long time ago. But the way it is read, the implications in this note are that he asked Chad to start working on this process in April. So Mr. Gordon here has some excellent arguments here to say that wasn't, in fact, the case. I responded to Marty, expressing my regrets at the situation and my belief that working against each other didn't make any sense, especially under the circumstances. I said we should pool our resources. In his open letter posted on Reddit, Marty later claimed that his decision to enlist Chad happened at the last minute and was due to fares. I wouldn't make the April 16th deadline. He implies it. But the files Chad sent me tell a different story. Perhaps unknown to Marty, BWF metadata details the exact creation date, time, and software used by whoever made the edits. Metadata in Chad's files show he began work on their alternative OST as far back as August of 2019, six months before I received the contract. And if you zoom in here, you can see these September 2019, September 2019, October 2019, August 2019 dates for the soundtrack project, folder project, soundtrack, Chad edits. So that's a pretty good argument on behalf of Mr. Gordon, that this was already in process. And it implies to me, we're speculating now, that id Software and Marty Stratton thought they might be able to do it without him, right? They might have been able to claim as part of this that yes, it's Mick Gordon's soundtrack and that he wrote the music, but it's edited by us. And it doesn't really require him to have been a part of the mixing process in order to still be authored by him. This might have been what Mr. Stratton or id Software in general was thinking. They went through this process. They're going to ignore him. He goes up around the edge, talks to Bethesda directly, and Bethesda might be like, what are you doing? What is even going on here that arrives at this particular situation? Now we get a lot of specifics where Mr. Gordon says, hey, none of these songs actually met with the requirements, the standards that are required of anybody that would want a soundtrack of this type. He goes and works for a long period of time to get this done. He says, instead of family time on Easter weekend, he crunched and worked under his desk. The deadline arrived, and despite being worn down from the combined effects of overwork and lack of sleep, production had gone well. But on the final day, I encountered a system-related technical problem, and I contacted Bethesda to explain the situation. I had 10 songs ready for handover, but a computer issue has halted progress. I need four to five hours to fix it and bounce the final tracks. Bethesda was understanding, granted the minor extension of what he claims is four or five hours, but Marty's upset and demands an urgent group call across three different time zones, which is just added color to make it seem ridiculous, to tell everyone he didn't want these 10 songs. He actually wanted other songs. That's the ambient versus combat music argument. And Mr. Gordon says, I couldn't believe it. The deadline was five hours away. I'd been awake for days after working for four solid weeks. 10 months had passed since the OST first went up for pre-order. However, despite ample time, Marty hadn't given me any direction on the OST whatsoever. But now at the absolute last possible minute, he actually wanted to do something about it. I shot back that their rapidly crunching schedule and imminent deadline meant it was too late for a change in direction, and I'd prefer to use the little time remaining to work on the music rather than entertain his sudden last-minute interest in the OST. He said that they would instead release Chad's version. He told me to hand over my tracks and Chad would assemble the final OST. I could have protested, but it wouldn't have done any good. Under the contract, Marty was guaranteed veto power and complete creative control. Ultimately, I'm just a contractor. 
I handed over my tracks, wished them well as I politely as I could. They approved my tracks, confirmed I had met my contractual obligations. The total contract amount, including the on-time bonus payment, was later paid out in full without dispute. And I never heard the final version. I was done not just with the OST, but with id Software 2. I struggled to understand why a challenging two-year development had ended with an unnecessarily difficult fortnight. And I was extremely nervous about the release and felt that fans, ignorant of the situation behind the scenes, would likely criticize the outcome. Depressed and totally exhausted, I felt dragged down into futility after not having slept much in weeks. But even more seriously, I was just now becoming aware through game-ripped music popping up online of the sheer amount of unpaid music used in Doom Eternal. So he's becoming aware of it from people essentially making YouTube videos ripping music from the actual soundtrack. Then they release it, and he's got problems all over the place. Majority had been made by stitching together multiple audio files. Many of the splice points were made freehand, off-grid. I'm sure these things mean something to those of you that make music out there. One of the most successful songs from the Doom 2016 score barely makes an appearance in Doom Eternal, but is butchered to make three tracks for the Doom Eternal OST. And why all of this was included is beyond me, because you can take the WISE files, complete with tempo information, and just seamlessly have them put into a soundtrack if that's all you wanted to do. Now, as for the credits, we heard Mr. Stratton address this. Seeing Chad credited as co-artist on these tracks pissed me off. That's a very honest answer. Credit theft is rampant in video game music. Chad didn't write, arrange, perform, record, or produce any of the music. He carried out a copy-paste job cutting apart finished music and resaving it. For this, the proper credit would be considered music editor. Yet in some cases, such as Erdak and Diag Radnak, Doom Music, he did nothing but change the file name. That frustrated me immensely. I crunched for two years straight on my Doom Eternal score and the fact that someone else thought it proper to take the credit for my work felt like a cruel insult. You can see how this appears in some of these soundtrack frameworks, right? Mick Gordon and Chad Mossholder is what is listed for these soundtrack items. Now, as I said, when going over Mr. Stratton's comment, it does create a problem either way that you look at it, which is that clearly Mick Gordon would not be happy to be listed as the author of this soundtrack uh, track that is not up to his standards. So at that point, you know, what do you do? Potentially you say, strip my name of it. If you're Mick Gordon and you know in advance, we don't know what he would have done because he didn't know about it in advance, at least according to him. And this is the outcome that they came up with and it made him upset. Worst of all is the inclusion of hours of music and rejected demos I was not and still have not been paid to produce. And I think that's where a lot of this really lies. He did double the music for what he was paid for. They didn't pay him. And that's honestly where the complaint kind of lives emotionally, in my opinion, reading these various messages. I was dismayed. Ultimately, it's fans who spent hundreds of dollars in the collector's edition who should be the most disappointed. And then I had a Skype call with Marty after the release. The OST problems were glaringly obvious, immediately drew negative criticism. You saw the article that we looked at from VG247. I will link that in the description, as I mentioned. I was skeptical of his intentions to have a call with me. As Mr. Gordon describes it, Marty can overwhelm you with the power of his disappointment. I was worried he was setting up the call for confrontation, not resolution. My responsibility to him ended when my contract finished, and I didn't feel like committing myself to a barrage of threats and abuse. And in my view, the poor reception was the real world consequence of a mismanaged project. Marty reassured me a positive outcome was his only focus. He insisted he had no intention of doing anything to disparage me or my work and only wanted to overcome the situation with a professional and collaborative approach. After considering his demeanor, I felt I should embrace the opportunity to engage Marty directly on the OST and unpaid minutes because I also wanted a positive outcome to the situation. I want to get paid. You doubled up on what you didn't pay me for. Marty reassured me and said he genuinely wanted to work together. That's what's best for all. I had no reason to suspect he had anything but positive intentions, so I took him at his word and agreed to take the call. 
Straight away, it was clear Marty was angry with me. Frankly, we're too effing nice, he snapped. I approached the call like one should when dealing with a manager on the warpath, keep calm, listen intently, and express understanding, but remain firm. I was upset my music had been butchered, baffled at Chad being named a co-artist, and shocked at the extensive use of unpaid music. I could hear Marty making notes of my comments, but rather than acknowledge my concerns, he jumped to the conclusion that I was initiating an attack. He grew suspicious and convinced himself the act of me explaining the problems was some sort of diabolical scheme to sow disunity and division. He tried to bring Chad into the call for support, but he couldn't be reached, and it occurred to me that Marty didn't really understand the issues and was trying to argue based on misperception. Marty said the consumer protection issue caused by taking pre-orders before the OST was under contract was no joke. I reminded him the OST had been announced without consulting me in the first place, and he had blocked every attempt I made to get it started. It was only when I went to Bethesda directly that things finally got underway. And quite frankly, he hadn't even bothered to tell me about the consumer protection issue until 13 days before the final deadline. In response, Marty explained he was trying to protect all of us, but now, because I had not fallen in line, I was on my own. As soon as people come after us, we come after you, he said. Now, this is from Mr. Gordon. I don't know whether we have evidence of this. I don't know whether he has a recording of this Skype call or not. Certainly, I can't remember the exact language used in a Skype call. I have even a contentious one two and a half years ago. So I want to treat a little bit of the specifics here with a grain of salt. But what he wants to communicate is that Marty was threatening. He put across the view that the act of me signing the contract had absolved him of any prior mismanagement that led to the situation in the first place. Now, that's an interesting argument, right? You didn't get enough time. All these complaints that you have, again, putting on the hat of Mr. Stratton, but you signed on the dotted line. You signed it whenever it was in March. You signed it to deliver on April 16th. If you failed to do that, well, you're failing to meet your contractual obligations. And if you didn't agree to some of the protections that we've already talked about in that contract, then yes, I have complaints about you. You didn't have to sign that in March for delivery in April if you can't deliver on it. Now, again, Mr. Gordon has presented his own arguments in respect of this contract that id Software didn't provide him with the guidance that he needed, didn't provide him with the support that the contract required, at least as described by Mr. Gordon. So you can have this fight all day, but... Mr. Stratton, as bad as he comes off in this statement here from Mr. Gordon, isn't entirely without some merit in his argument to say, you signed the deal and we had a problem with you delivering. You know, what am I supposed to do about that? He accused me of lying when I told him about the email I received from Bethesda that contradicted him on the importance of the deadline. I forwarded him the email, but he ignored it. Seeming to forget I only received the contract two days before the game released, Marty rejected my assertion that id Software is always rushing things and expressed frustration at the notion out in public that they didn't afford me enough time to produce a better album. Now, he had 29 days. I can't tell you what can be produced in 29 days. I can tell you he's certainly not wrong to not start working on things without a contract, which apparently a different Bethesda studio had already shown to him, which is an understandable lesson to take from all this. Uh, But with 29 days, 12 tracks seems like about the right number. I said that if I had been allowed to start work with the OST immediately following the announcement in middle of 2019, we would have avoided the consequences that were now playing out. But he just continued to put me down, saying I would have messed it up some other way. After he spent some time chastising me for my lack of public support, he charged that the failure of the OST was entirely my fault. I shot back that it wasn't my decision to include 47 poorly edited tracks. I hadn't even heard their final album before release, and he directly accused me of failing to take ownership and insisted I take full public responsibility. I countered that there was absolutely no way I would take the fall for something I didn't do. And now comes the emotionality and the blame, right? Mr. Stratton wants him to go out in public and say this is all his fault. And Mr. Gordon says, no, it wasn't. 
After the call raged on for almost an hour, we ultimately agreed on the necessity to dispel rumors, calm fans, and demonstrate unity. I told him the situation felt like an excellent opportunity to show how disputes should be resolved. We cleared the air and bashed out a plan to work together. Marty suggested we publish a joint statement that addressed the OST situation and detailed our plans to fix the album, and I felt this was an excellent first step. He requested I hold off on all further public comments until we address the public together. I agreed to his request and said I was at his discretion, his disposal. The call ended with Marty telling me to accept a draft of the following morning. Expect one. After the call, I replayed the meeting in my mind. I determined that Marty honestly wanted to resolve the issue in the most amicable way possible, and I had no reason to think otherwise. I awaited the draft statement, and it never arrived. Instead, in an ugly move, days later, Marty took to Reddit and used a company's social media account to post an extensive series of lies that blamed me entirely for the failure of the Doom Eternal OST. And as I said, when we went over this, that certainly seems to be the thrust of this message. I agree with Mr. Gordon that the overall here is this is Mr. Gordon's fault, right? He's talented, but he creates an unsustainable pattern of project uncertainty. He's talented, but I couldn't give him an OST contract when he wanted one because of ongoing issues receiving the music we needed for the game. And we didn't want to distract him at that time. He's talented, but he agreed to deliver it by March. And then in February, he tried to extend it. And then he's not delivering here. He's not delivering when he needs to in mid-April because of a technical issue, which is implied in this statement to be maybe not true. Everybody that's complaining about what was delivered in the OST doesn't know what they're talking about, even though Mr. Gordon disagrees with that notion. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it was his idea to use these edited tracks. And so everything falls on him. That's what you can read in that statement. And I don't believe Mr. Gordon to be wrong. Now, Mr. Gordon also says, didn't we just agree not to do this? According to him, they had a conversation that said, we're going to wait on a public statement. He also says he's horrified, not just at Marty turning his back on what was our agreed upon path forward, but also at his shameless disregard for the truth in his attack. The Reddit post is littered with lies and disinformation. The Doom subreddit isn't an official page. It is run by fans. Marty's company Reddit account, Marty at id, had been dormant for three years. He resurrected the account for this post, choosing the site to amplify his intent. Reddit's ongoing issues with toxic fandom and abuse are obvious, and the site's history of notorious hate campaigns targeting individuals in the game industry could not have been far from Marty's mind. This is speculative, and I think Mr. Gordon goes too far. Reddit is still just a message board on the internet, and you can deliver messages on Reddit without believing that it's going to result in attacks on the other party. Reading the Reddit post made me sick to my stomach, lie after lie after lie, all pointing to me as the fault while posturing himself as the one who did nothing wrong. What hurt me the most was the feeling I'd been duped. I openly trusted Marty. Just days earlier, he told me he wanted to approach the situation professionally, to collaborate, that he had no intention of disparaging me. During our call, Marty told me he avoids social media and never posts online because he knows anything he says becomes the next day's news. But here he was, using his platform to launch a direct personal attack. I'd been manipulated. And then, my favorite heading in any of these messages, lawyers become involved. There wasn't just one serious situ, but two. Marty published a series of false accusations against me. That can certainly rub you the wrong way. And id Software shipped Doom Eternal with double the amount of music that they paid for. Lawyers, I immediately had my legal representative contact id Software with complaints about both matters. Marty forwarded my complaints to ZeniMax, and within days I got a response from the executive legal authority from the upper echelons of the company. ZeniMax assumed that Marty had acted appropriately and denied needing to pay me for the additional music. Now, I actually don't know of any lawyers when faced with this particular kind of issue that won't go and read the contract themselves. So I can't tell you 
whether or not Mr. Gordon is talking about this correctly at this point in time. But it is possible that the lawyers did just assume that Id was telling the truth and shot out a response that was like, no, we believe our management uh, and you're going to need to bring more than that. To combat their stance, I demonstrated Marty's allegations directly contradicted the contractual terms, public announcements, and contents of email and phone calls. So this is an open question as well to a lawyer like me, because the contract terms are generally going to have what we call a merger provision that says that everything that is in respect of this, you're going to make us music, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars. That all appears within the four corners of this document. Nothing else changes that that is south of an actual written and signed amendment. So emails, phone calls, public announcements, they don't generally change the terms of the contract. So I'd be curious to see exactly what this changes in terms of the evidence pathway. He also concluded his exploited his position of authority to deliberately spread misinformation, used Reddit as a vehicle and substantially damaged my reputation. This is the defamation kind of claim and showed that Doom Eternal included almost five hours of music over double what they agreed to pay me per the contract. Once I presented those details, Zenimax quickly offered to settle. Id Software and Zenimax engaged a large multinational law firm as representation. I don't know what that changes of anything except to say, ooh, big scary lawyers, I believe. And we began settlement negotiations. I demanded Marty withdraw his false accusations and issue an apology, but they rejected this on Marty's concern that if he admitted fault publicly, that would negatively affect his reputation. It would. Instead, they proposed a deal. They would pay me the money owed, but on the condition I produce a new polished version of the Doom Eternal OST, appearing to suggest that if I gave them something to sell, that would somehow make up for the damage Marty had caused to my reputation. I don't think that's what they were actually doing. They were trying to say, well, it worked the last time. Let's see if we can get more out of you for failing to pay you in the past. Uh, And this time it didn't appear to work. I struggled with Marty's assistance on avoiding accountability, but realized his company was unlikely to agree to anything unless it was mutually beneficial. With that in mind, I agreed to produce a new proper Doom Eternal OSD. So the mutual beneficialness here is I'm not going to sue you and I'm not going to publicize this. And you want to sign me up to a gag order. That's, that's where you get the beneficialness. You don't necessarily agree to make more music for the folks that didn't pay you. But again, what comes across the most in this message to me is a certain amount of trust and a certain amount of wanting to just work to get the work done, which I think is something worth promoting. That's a good stance for a human and an individual to take. It isn't necessarily a great stance to take when engaged in high-level contractual negotiations. However, I was unwilling to do the work while living under the shadow of ridicule and abuse stemming from Marty's Reddit post. His actions severely eroded my trust in him, and I requested Marty take down the post as a sign of good faith. But lawyers acting on Marty's behalf, that's what the other side does, expressed worry that even removing the post would reflect poorly on his reputation, which struck me as profoundly hypocritical. He should have thought about that before posting it in the first place. In response, I told them my acceptance of their settlement offer was tied to the condition that Marty would remove the post immediately. That prompted, according to Mr. Gordon, a spectacular meltdown. Their mood suddenly changed and a threatening tone edged their letter of response. They withdrew the settlement offer and vowed the Reddit post was just the beginning. Marty was willing to issue legal proceedings to use the court process to damage my reputation further. They threatened legal action over times I had discussed Doom Eternal publicly, forcing me to remove my YouTube streams and for using Doom Eternal in my portfolio, meaning I cannot share any of the music I produced for the game and I had to remove any mention of Doom Eternal from my website. I don't know what Mr. Gordon's contract says, but in terms of overall discussing that you have it as a project and including samples in your portfolio, That is the kind of thing we negotiate for creatives that are contributing to a video game. I have no idea 
what his contract term says. I have questions about special damages. I have questions about portfolio usage. I have questions about all sorts of stuff if these threats are legitimate or to be concerned about. The letter then devolved into a bizarre rant that attempted to frame Marty's behavior not as wrongdoing, but as something I deserved. But contrarily, that same letter presented me with a new settlement for damages caused anyway. And again, we don't get the actual examples here. So this is all kind of Mr. Gordon's understanding. The new settlement offer was for a six-figure sum in return for taking full public responsibility for the failure of the OST. The details were absurd. Marty would keep the Reddit post up indefinitely. He'd never retract his false accusations nor clarify his statement, and his story would forever be considered the truth. I could never discuss Doom Eternal, the OST, or the Reddit post. If ever asked, I had to say no comment, and I had to pledge I would never badmouth Marty or anyone working under the ZeniMax umbrella, and I could never criticize any product developed by ZeniMax Studio. So <clears throat> this is Mr. Gordon's understanding of what this contract is. But it's effectively the post stays up and you have a, no, a non-comment and non-disparagement provision in the contract. I can see how that would bother you. And I can see how that would bother you reputationally. I don't know whether there was taking full public responsibility as an additional requirement or this was just his understanding of what it would mean to say nothing about any of these things and to leave the Reddit post up. But this is how Mr. Gordon felt about it. I had to accept blame for the situation under contract for life. In return, I'd be paid a six-figure sum and Marty would save face and be free to continue on his way without any fear of interference of any kind from me, to which Mr. Gordon, as he frames it in this post, says, go to hell. As far as I was concerned, signing the gag order was out of the question. Giving up my right to tell the truth just to get some money was totally unacceptable. It meant having Marty walk all over me wasn't so bad as to be beyond being paid off. The truth is more important. Now, honestly, this is presented as some kind of righteous ideal, but I think for someone that is a reputation in an industry, this has to be the right move. You can't just allow someone to say that you failed on your time commitments, you were difficult to work with, you didn't meet your logistical burdens. When you have phrases like what we highlighted in this particular statement, right? You created an unsustainable pattern of project uncertainty and risk. That's a silver bullet against talent that is contracted out for video games, right? You go and you look at this statement if I'm Mr. Gordon, this is doing massive damage. However, all this works, you put this on me, it's going to be difficult for me to get future work in this industry. So that's why I'm concerned about it. It's not even really the, the justice of it all. You're legitimately hurt on this stuff, especially if you're at the point in time where, as described by Mr. Gordon, taking with that the grain of salt that we need to, you've got a situation where ZeniMax is negotiating a settlement with you. They think that there is some veracity in your position. Just when I thought things couldn't get any worse, incidences of online abuse escalated at an alarming rate as Marty's Reddit post led to frustration over my alleged professional failure and toxic gamers grew openly aggressive. They shared my personal details via message boards, including Reddit, which meant that abusers could now reach me in more ways than ever. They email bombed my inboxes, crashing the server and clogging my messaging services. They harassed my other clients with attempts to get me fired. They called my phone numbers around the clock, screaming messages full of abuse. Now, I am a very low member of the social media community, especially compared to Mr. Gordon here. But I can certainly vouch for the fact that when a mob decides to come after you, they come after you hard and they come after you with every media option that they know. I've talked about that in the past. I've talked about that with respect to console wars and other things, people putting reviews in my Google page, sending death threats, whatever it might be. And I certainly understand how negative that can make you feel about the process. I began receiving specific expressions of violence. The content so vivid it made me sick. The torrent of abuse telling me how to kill myself, how I'd been mutilated, how they would circulate photos of my body. We'll not continue with that paragraph so much from there, but obviously really traumatic stuff as described by Mr. Gordon. 
This spew of harassment coupled with legal threats from Marty put me under enormous strain. I began to feel isolated as his demands of the situation took their toll, and I desperately sought a way to resolve the matter. I rejected the gag order and returned to the negotiation table with a counteroffer. Remove the Reddit post, pay me for the extra music in Doom Eternal, and I will make you an OST. I hope that presenting something they had previously asked for might persuade them to change their mind. I also shared details of the abuse. Lawyers acting on Marty's behalf requested time to discuss the offer, which gave me some hope. But then stalling began. And over the coming months, I was subjected to every miserable delay tactic trick in the book. They would request a meeting to discuss the settlement, suddenly postpone, reschedule, and then cancel at the last minute. We'd follow up, and they'd respond by requesting more time to consider the details. Chasing them again, they'd feed me excuses that always ended with, we'll get back to you. Next, they'd lead me on, saying their internal conversations were heading in a positive direction, before delaying further because someone important who had input was holidaying in Miami. Now, in fairness, having worked with large law firms, a lot of this is true. A lot of this is delaying install tactics. Sometimes this is just the nature of the thing if it's not a big enough deal for them to worry about and it gets passed over for transaction after transaction. As each week passed, bringing plenty of excuses peppered with hollow assurances of a positive outcome, it became more evident that I was being strung along. They threw out the idea of ever redoing the OST and instead demanded the gag order only. I looked at the email in dismay. After months of delays, meeting cancellations, and postponements, they arrived precisely at the same place that they had started. And then... Microsoft says they're going to acquire ZeniMax. And instead of celebrating the game's success, I was caught up in a situation I can only describe as stupid. Marty's company had gotten to the point of offering to pay me off instead of addressing his inability to take responsibility. Uh, the The absurdity of it all wasn't lost on me. News of the acquisition gave me hope now that with the pressure of a much larger entity looking over their shoulder, Marty might be encouraged to consider the benefits of a mutually beneficial outcome. And so for the second time I proposed, I will make a version of the OST But in return, I needed Marty to take down the Reddit post, publish a clarification, and pay me for the extra music. I can't say I was keen on doing it, but I desperately tried to find a way to move forward, and it was the only real option I had. Again, lawyers acting for Marty were good at giving the impression of positivity. They seemed to be seriously considering the offer, saying they were taking it up the chain and getting key stakeholders on board. However, any hope I had left eroded when they started to pull out the same tired stalling tactics. As the months wore on, they became belligerent and inflexible. They even degenerated into gaslighting tactics trying to convince me that removing the Reddit post would somehow make my situation worse. So for the benefit of everyone, it should remain untouched. I don't know whether that's gaslighting or not. I know there are phrases that are common on the internet. I think there is an argument to be made that churning up the waters can make things worse. We're two and a half years removed from that post. We're two and a half years removed from the controversy at all. This kind of message definitely stirs up the waters. You're defending yourself. Uh, but it does kind of call for a return volley from ZeniMax or id, uh, should they deign to do so. Uh, So I do think the lawyers can advocate to say we shouldn't churn all this up again. I don't say that you have to take that. And again, I've already commented on the fact that I think that the comments made are serious enough that you need to do something about them if you can, if you're in the right, to prevent bad things from happening to you and your reputation and your career. But two and a half years separate, I might offer the same kind of advice. I'd had enough. I grew tired of having the respect I afforded Marty and his employer with attempts to resolve the dispute privately get turned into a giant waste of time, effort, and money. The Reddit post had been up for 15 months and attempts to resolve the dispute with Marty had gotten me nowhere. So again, we're we're two and a half years separate from that post. As described here, we've got 15 months. So you can account for about a year of this. I don't know how we get to the next year thereafter to when you decide to make this post. I'm, I'm curious about that. Now, he goes to the Reddit moderator and asks for it to be taken down. It does get taken down. Uh, Within 12 hours, it's reinstated, and Marty's lawyers contact me and say that removing the post had greatly offended him. 
He was furious and made it clear in the strongest possible terms that an amicable resolution would be impossible. And that puts him in this situation. Marty Stratman has put me in a position where the only step I can take to repair my reputation is with a public response. It is a defense, not an unprovoked attack. This is what he has decided to do in response to those comments that I earlier commented on. Publishes a last resort and with extreme reluctance only after every other avenue to reach a mutually agreeable resolution has failed. I have given Marty ample opportunity to correct the false accusations. Marty seems to think so little of me that I'd give up my right to tell the truth and willingly accept the long-term mental health implications of publicly taking the blame for the situation in exchange for money. The only thing left to do is issue this public response. I wish Marty had taken more time to consider better options before deciding on that Reddit post. Marty ends his Reddit post acknowledging an end to our collaboration, but this wasn't a real collaboration. I never quit Doom. I quit a toxic client. And then we get to the factual rebuttal, which I think we can go through a little bit quicker. We're already at almost an hour and a half into this video, but it covers things that we've already talked about. One, Doom's Eternals OST was poorly managed from the outset. We saw this described above. The OST was delayed before I was under contract. That's a bad idea. The OST contract proves Marty's claims are false. Now, here's one where we get a little bit far afield because in order to agree with this, we have to take it on its face. From what Mr. Gordon is telling us, we didn't get a copy of that contract in, in this message. As far as I could tell, obviously it's long. So if I missed a link, leave it in the comments below. Uh, but we don't get a copy of that contract, presumably because most contracts are going to be covered by non-disclosure provisions. Marty claims we signed a contract in January and the deadline was early March, but that's a total lie. I got my contract in March for an April 16th delivery. January was when I was contacting Bethesda directly out of desperation as a last-ditch effort, but nothing else. I was only paid to produce 12 songs, not the 30 tracks. Again, some of these are implications. And when I said we have to take with a grain of salt some of this on emotionality, it's because there's a clear fracture between Mr. Gordon and Mr. Stratton here. So even where we can say, hey, this is only by implication and maybe it's not as bad as some of the other things. Well, he looks at everything as negatively as possible. And if it is as described in this message, who can blame him? I didn't have creative control. Marty claims otherwise, but id Software exercised creative control extensively. The final album details were withheld from me. id Software is not obligated to seek my approval for anything. And Marty took it upon himself to produce the album in the final days of the project, cutting me out. It has full access to the source material. I was contractually obligated to hand over all stems, mix sessions, production files, raw recordings, demos, mockups, and other source files. Now it's worthwhile to note that it doesn't actually say that he did that, that id Software asked for it but they could have gotten it if they wanted it, is the point here. The reason their edits weren't good enough was not due to a lack of source material or access to it. It was a lack of standards. This is uh, some, some fireballs being thrown in this section. Marty knew the truth. He made these false accusations against me willingly. That's setting up for a defamation claim right there. I still can't fathom why Marty claimed to be telling the entire story, knowing I could simply point at the contract as proof against him. They paid me for the OST without dispute. He's using his kind of circumstantial evidence. Hey, they paid me. They didn't argue about what I delivered. They included the on-time bonus. So at least circumstantially, somebody over there thought that I had done what I was supposed to do under the contract and the rest isn't my fault. Id Software had been working on the OST for six months without me before I was under contract. We talked about that. Marty doesn't understand how to master audio, which is fair. The obvious problems immediately drew valid criticism. We talked about that. The doubt will ever work together again comment from the top of his message is interesting. Mr. Gordon says here, Marty highlighted that comment I made in private in response to someone asking if I wish to continue working with id. I said what I said because quite honestly, I got sick of dealing with a toxic client. It's a shame because on both Doom and Doom Eternal, I had the great fortune of working directly with enormously talented people. 
My statement issued in response to Marty Stratton has nothing to do with the rest of the doomed team. Marty took great offense to my comment, claiming he was surprised because allegedly it was the first time we discussed ending our collaboration. But the truth is I had my doom contracts threatened several times and Marty himself even made such a threat. In terms of credits, Marty justifies crediting Chad as a co-artist on the album by saying it was the fair thing to do. And Mr. Gordon primarily argues that that is ridiculous because he had other collaborators that should have been listed that they refused to list. And so he's not about fairness. And as for awards, he never gets to see them. They're all held by id Software and nobody is offered to send him copies. The most hurtful lie, according to Mr. Gordon, is that in a grubby move and without proof, Marty alleged that I instigated a campaign of harassment targeting id Software employees in a baseless claim that is a total lie. He directly accused me of making statements that led some to vilify and attack an id employee. Now here, I think the negativity gets away from Mr. Gordon a little bit, right? We talked about this when we went over the original statement, but when he talks of statements that can result in attacking one of his employees, it isn't the kind of thing that is said by Mr. Stratton that implies that it was Mr. Gordon that was, that was attacking his employees, right? What has become unacceptable to me are the direct and personal attacks on our lead audio designer. I feel it is my responsibility to respond on their behalf. And then when he talks about this all from Mr. Gordon, it's in the nature of what you said gave people a foothold to actually attack this employee at id Software, which undoubtedly isn't wrong, but it's odd. And this is something that happens on the internet a lot that the response to this is, oh, but it's fine when I name and shame, when I put forth however many words I put forth on Reddit. And when Mr. Gordon responds with, look at the toxic attacks that have resulted against me, it doesn't result in the same kind of protection for what is a valued contributor to the product that has won you critical acclaim and commercial success. So I don't necessarily think Mr. Gordon is fully right here, but this is an emotional kind of argument that says, look, this is what you've positioned that I have caused this. I didn't cause it. The situation is caused by you. And I don't know that it's a lie, but it's certainly something that I would react to were I in Mr. Gordon's shoes. Marty took the effort to point out I had knowledge of his decision to enlist Chad going so far as to use bold text to highlight the point, but he also held back from saying, I thought the edits weren't up to standard. I voiced my anxiety over their release and I never approved of the final, uh, the final album. Summary of facts, I haven't been paid for over half of my Doom Eternal music. The Doom Eternal OST was a mess, had my name attached, had it attached before I was even contracted to produce it. After seven months of inaction, I went above his head to actually get a contract done. I received the contract just 48 hours before the game was to be released and the original date when the soundtrack was to be released with it. I had 29 days to give you the 12 tracks. I got what I was supposed to get done, done, and I didn't approve of what you finally released out into the market. So it isn't my fault. Their poor quality release immediately drew criticism and a worried Marty personally asked me for assistance before making that Reddit post and effectively, according to Mr. Gordon, screwing me over. In issuing the statement, I'm exercising my right to defend myself. And at the end of the day, you see how contracts and contractors and these kinds of relationships work in practice. Mr. Gordon seems for all the world, and certainly for me, to be someone who wants to get the job done, wants to make the music, wants to be a creative, wants to be the talent, wants to help you make your product. But at least as described in his statement, he was trusting of ZeniMax. He was trusting of Bethesda and id Software in getting him what he needed to get in order to get the job done. And maybe his contract wasn't as complete as he would otherwise see it be. I don't know what his legal representation was. I don't know what they negotiated in those details, but 
at the point in time where id software is using double of what they say that they should have been paying for you've got a reasonable breach of contract complaint and when the ost stuff goes down at the same time well it's no surprise to me that these relationships evaporated really dissolved as much as they did in this context what do you think do you think Mick Gordon has the right of it? Is this a kind of terrifying tale of woe? If you're in the business of providing content for video games and creation, are you a musician? Are you a composer? What do you think of all this? Are you just an artist writing uh, concept art or otherwise putting forth aspects of a video game that is on a contractual basis and now you have the fear of God put into you for what's in that contract and whether or not you'll be paid on time? Would you have done anything differently than Mr. Gordon here? Or is this what you would have had to do at the end of all things two and a half years after Mr. Stratton puts forth his Doom Eternal OST open letter. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy conversations about the business and law of video games, software, technology, and more, please consider supporting the channel at our Utreon, our Patreon, a YouTube subscription, or anywhere else. Thanks again to Raketsu86 for being that very special sponsor of this particular episode. We can't do it without folks like you. If none of those things interest you, just subscribing, telling your friends, and sharing these videos around every little bit helps. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. 